We thought we would do something a little bit different while we're on a break this summer. So we're sharing episodes from other podcasts we've come to know and love. Today is an episode of the Reach Out and Read podcast series. Reach Out and Read is an evidence-based primary care clinic-delivered early childhood literacy promotion program that uses the regular well-child visits to facilitate discussion around literacy and encourage shared reading at home. Beyond the expected benefits to children and their families, research has found that Reach Out and Read boosts clinic morale, increases provider satisfaction, improves patient-clinician relationships, and promotes a literacy-rich environment. For more information, visit their website at reachoutandread.org. This episode is with Jason Reynolds. Jason Reynolds is a much-decorated prolific novelist, poet, and has been the Library of Congress's National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. I've been a huge fan of his for years, and I knew we had to share this with you. As always, this interview with Jason Reynolds is far-ranging, and he is deeply honest about himself and about the power of imagination, literature, and storytelling to allow America's youth to grow, to strive, and to reverse the ills of racism and beyond. I think his perspective is equally relevant to adults, and although he doesn't say it here, my favorite phrase from him that his beloved mother taught him is, say the thing, stand on your square, and lean into the truth courageously. It's something I hear in my head a lot. Thank you to the Reach Out and Read podcast for letting us share this episode with you. They've got 80 episodes of Good Conversations. You might want to have a look at some of the others. But right now, let's have a listen to Dr. Navsaria's conversation with Jason Reynolds. One of the immense pleasures and honors of being able to do this show is that we are able to speak with a broad range of people who all work in their own ways to foster the joys and benefits of childhood literacy, including pediatricians, teachers, and writers. And today, we get to spend time with an incredible poet and novelist, Jason Reynolds. Jason is the author of 14 books, including the Track series, A Long Way Down and As Brave As You. He's a Newbery Medal honoree, a Prince Award honoree, a National Book Award finalist, a Kirkus Prize winner, a two-time Walter Dean Myers Award winner, an NAACP Image Award winner, and the recipient of multiple Coretta Scott King honors. He's also the Library of Congress's National Ambassador for Young People's Literature for 2020 and 2021. Yes, as someone with a library science degree, I'm totally nerding out here after reading that. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks, Depeche. I appreciate it, man. So we're recording today's episode on November 3rd, Election Day. And by the time this airs, we'll be well into setting our collective course for the coming weeks and months. To add to the turmoil of our national politics, we're also still deeply entrenched in a global pandemic. Given all that, what keeps you grounded these days? Oh, Depeche. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what, man? It's, it's, um, it, it's a, uh, an ever growing challenge to stay grounded. You know, these, these interviews are always interesting because I know that there are answers I'm supposed to give, you know? Uh, but I, I also try to pride myself on being honest about, about who I am and, and where I am at any given time. And so the truth is, man, I'm having a hard time. I think, I normally would run to to children 
to get what I need, right? Like I, I work for children and in service of kids, but the truth of the matter is, is that I'm probably fed more by them than they are by me. And I can't get to them. Right. And I, um, and it's been really hard to, to find my anchoring point. It's been hard to kind of find my footing uh, during this period because I'm human like everybody else. I try to put it in the art. I'm so grateful to have, to have some sort of container to dump my emotions in, right? Because I do have art. I do have writing. I do have this thing that I know will always be there for me. But even that's hard to do right now because I can't concentrate very much. Um, and so just trying to feel my feels, man. I'm just, honestly, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to feel my feels and, and be where it is that I am and, and where that is, is sort of in a liminal space. Uh, there are days that are really good where I can kind of do my thing and feel like myself. And then there are other days where I feel like, uh, you know, a shell of, of, of what I know myself to be. Uh, I try to be easy on myself and not feel bad about those moments. Um, and, and, and I try to remember that, um, that no matter how I feel right now, there's someone who feels worse because I'm one of the fortunate ones. And, and, and that reminder in and of itself, is it, it doesn't ground me, but it at least centers me uh, in moments that are a bit wavy. I think you've encapsulated beautifully how so many of our listeners feel. And uh, the reminder that it's it's okay to not be okay is, 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 is so important. So one of your roles, as I mentioned, is that you're the national ambassador of young people's literature, which I, I had to confess conjured up an image of, uh, you know, that you must be attending state dinners consisting of formally dressed children making toasts and brief speeches. But I, I, I suspect that's not quite accurate. What, what does that role usually entail? And how have you been able to connect with kids uh, these days, given the challenge of travel and events that you just alluded to? Yeah. First, let me tell you, if, if it did sort of require there to be young people dressed in suits and bow ties, trust that I would not have taken the role, right? Like, I, that ain't for me, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so, um, so it, the best way to think about the national ambassadorship is to think about it like uh, a laureate. Right. We know what the poet laureate does. We know, you know, Joy Harjo right now is serving her second term as a poet laureate. And, and, and her, her job is to be uh, the poetic representation of the country. Right. Within the country and, out, and externally, but mostly within the country. Your job is to perpetuate and proliferate uh, poetry, um, uh, poetic literacy. Uh, around the country to serve as as the the go-to poet for any moment that may need one though right now america isn't the most poetic place um i i think like her role is to sort of serve as that beacon for verse in this country right it's the same for me my job is to serve as as um if if we had to say well right now who is representing children's literature in america i'm supposed to be the person that that's pointed to but my job isn't necessarily to stand as some some beacon for children's literature to the country it's specifically to stand as beacon a beacon of children's literature to children right to the young people who are actually reading it um my platform is a little different than my 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 brilliant predecessors. Um, I think with these roles, it's easy to slip into, uh, it's easy to slip into something that's a bit hackneyed, right? It's like you take on a role like this, the job seems to be written into the, into the, into the actual title, right? The title ambassador, it, it lends itself to a specific thing. It's like your job is to go out and sort of be the megaphone for the thing that you're the ambassador for. 
period, right? And everyone has done that so brilliantly. I just don't know if young people actually make decisions to do things like read and write just because we go out and say, you know, reading and writing is good for you. It's just not a thing that happens, right? Kids don't operate that way, especially if they don't know who you are. Why should I trust you and believe you just because you got a fancy title and a medal means nothing to a 14-year-old? And so, and so my, my job was to say, well, let's, let's, let's come through the back door. What if we were to go to small town America, which is where I was going to focus on rural America, small, small town America, the heartland, the middle of the country, right? Main street America. And I was going to, because there's children there, despite our political, all of our political battling and volleying, the truth is that kids ain't, kids shouldn't be treated any differently, despite whatever we might think of their parents, right? Or what they might think of me for that matter. Kids are kids. And I wanted to go to these towns and I wanted to uh, just have conversations. Let, let Pick out the knucklehead in the crowd. Who, whoever, whichever kid is in trouble the most, have them come on stage with me. I'll put the ambassador medal around their necks. Make them the ambassador of this small town. They get to ask me anything they want. Everything is on the table. Everything is on the table, right? And parents get all squeamish, right? But the truth is, the moment that you tell a child that is an inappropriate question, you muzzle a child's curiosity. So what if we were to open it up and say, I'm going to answer all the questions. I'm an adult. I can handle it. I'll figure out how to finagle when it, when it gets a little dicey. But like, imagine if you were a kid, Depeche, and you met your hero. You met whoever it was in, in writing that was your guy. What if it were, I mean, today's kids love, I mean, when I was growing up, it was, all, all my homegirls loved Judy Bloom, right? And it was like, well, imagine if Judy Bloom showed up to the school and you got to ask Judy Bloom what kind of car she drove and she told you she drove a pink Cadillac. You would never forget it because she had a human moment with you. Then when she told you to read, you just might do it, right? And so, and so that was sort of the goal. Now, has it happened and can it happen? Maybe next year. I, I couldn't hit the road this year. Um, but we figured out other ways to engage through social media, through all sorts of essays, through all sorts of video series that I've created, through games I've created to play with the young people, whatever it takes to engage. I think there's such an important aspect uh, in, in all these amazing thoughts that you just shared about the importance of truth telling and allowing people to have the space to not just have the truth told to them, but to be able to tell their own truths uh, without, exactly. quote unquote, censorship and, 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 and so on, that authenticity matters, uh, not just to others, but to ourselves. I mean, imagine what it would be like uh, when we really when we really think about what it is we're asking young people to do as it pertains to reading. What we typically are doing is we're trying to convince them that the stories that exist outside of this, outside of themselves, are valuable, but not necessarily the stories that exist within them. Right. And so what if we so what if we reverse engineered and we said, you know, the story that you already own is just as valuable as the ones your teachers are trying to get you to read. So now you know that you already have a place in storytelling. You already are woven into the literacy of 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 existence simply because every single one of you has a story mm. to tell. It also centers the the the, the interaction in uh, in in about being what the the needs the experience uh, and so on is of of the child or or even the adult who you're talking to I I actually think about this in terms of how we approach healthcare right that if we if I walk in to do a checkup and it's all about my my template you know and the little boxes I need to check and the questions I'm quote unquote supposed to ask. Um, 
there's something missing from that interaction versus if I walk in and this is what we talk about a lot in reach out and read is, is address where the family is address what their needs are, what their experiences are and start from there. Um, and it's a fundamental aspect of building trust, right? This all comes back down to human relationships. I, I, it all is, man. I think, uh, you know, I believe in resonant frequency. It's an engineering term. It's the idea that if I could, if I could match the frequency of the organic materials that make up a thing, if I could match that frequency with the sound from my body, I could, I could break the walls of that thing. It's the reason that people who can sing in certain notes can break glass, mm -hmm. right? And the reason they can break glass is because their voice can match the resonant. If you pluck a glass and it makes the, the ding sound, if you can match that ding sound with your voice, the, the matching of that resonant frequency, if you can sustain it, will crack the glass, which means that as a human being, all I have to really figure out how to do is be as human as possible and as honest as possible with myself. And if I can sustain that honesty and that truth, it will resonate and crack the glass of a young person who feels like he or she can't be seen or heard. Mm -hmm. One of the things uh, that you've been doing is hosting a web series through the Library of Congress, and uh, it's called right 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 and since this is an audio medium that's right as in writing right as in right and wrong and right as in uh, a ritual uh, with segment titles such as and i just love these titles imagine yourself as a book casing imagine yourself as a plant explain love to a magical pet can you say a few things about the role of imagination and how it helps children grow and thrive you know, I think that imagination is, other than courage, right? Courage and imagination are, I think, the two most valuable assets to humanity. Uh, and unfortunately, both of them are actively fought against, right? It's like, it's like imagination gets stripped from you very, very young. Imagination gets stripped from you the moment that you're, that, that, the moment that you come into consciousness of the fact that you're being graded. Oh, right, that, that's, that you're literally being great. Everything you're doing is being quantified and empiricalized, and therefore things become pragmatic and structured. And, and and right, it's like there is no more wiggle room for freedom and self-expression. It gets it gets challenged every time that you uh, that that the narrative that there is that that standard English can only be taught at the dismissal of colloquial languages and mother tongues stripping you of the imagination of, of who you already are, just a, a, an innate imagination that exists within you taken away uh, because you have to fit into a particular standard. You have to be like everybody else. It kind of is counterintuitive to what imagination is, right? And so I think for me, when I think about who we are as a country, who our children, uh, who we desperately need our children to be, we need them to grow up to be creators. Everybody can't be a worker, right? That's a dangerous thing. Somebody has to make something. Somebody has to create something. And so my job is to constantly stretch them and challenge them. Uh, it's, it's something that I fight for in my own life. I'm 36 years, about to be 37 in a few weeks. And every day of my life is me fighting to hold on to my 12-year-old self. It's a very real thing, man. It's a very real, real, real thing. And lastly, what I want to say about imagination is every single thing that is, that is painful and that is harmful uh, about who we are, particularly in this country, was strictly birthed out of imagination. The ideas around racism, the ideas around all of it is, it's figments of imagination have spun into um, 
outrageously harmful catastrophe that spins on its own axis and that we all accept as just truth, right? The ways of the world, right? I so so my so I can't help but wonder if other figments of imagination could spin us into peace, could spin us into equity. Just just having the inkling of imagination, right? It, everything starts with just being able to imagine to imagine something that does not exist. I think what you say about imagination is is so important. I mean, even in the the ivory towers of academia, I've I've often said, right, there's a difference between saying we're only going to do things that are evidence-based versus those that are guided by the evidence but allows for creativity. Otherwise, you do the same 12 things over and over. I I want to come back to what you just said about how racism and discrimination and all was burst out of imagination and how we could reverse that. Because uh, you recently remixed Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's book, Stamped for a, a Young Adult Audience. And in the very first chapter, you say that racism itself was started, quote, through literature, storytelling, end quote. So how can literature and storytelling be used to reverse racism. You, 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 you just alluded to that. Let's, let's go there. I mean, everything, I mean, almost everything that we believe is rooted in some, in some book, mm-hmm. o- almost all of it, right. Or in some, or in some, or in some kind of written language, right. Whether it be our, the declaration, whether it be the constitution, whether it be the Bible and Quran, whether it be right. Like if there's always a piece of literature, whether it be in book form or in document form, right? There's always something that we go back to as guideposts to figure out how to justify the good things or the bad things that we do, right? It's it's just what we it's, it's who we are. Is what it's, and I I find it most fascinating because when we think about the power of narrative, what we're really thinking about, what we should be thinking about, and I, and I argue this all the time. People get really afraid of these kinds of words, right? That indoctrination is an interesting word. Um, because indoctrination has everything to, 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 to do with doctrine. And, and so when we think about indoctrination, we think about it as like, I have been sort of controlled as if all of us aren't indoctrinated already by something or from something. And so my whole thing is like, well, look, if, if the doctrine is the, is the cornerstone of, of thought and, and, and from thought, uh, life view, right. Then why don't we just make new doctrine, right? What if we could just create new doctrine that, offsets and, and, and it helps to correct some of the painful and harm done, some of the pain and harm done by the doctrines that have been used for obvious reasons. I mean, look, America is a capitalist country. We know, uh, you know, depression, we know, we know that the, 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 the imagination of the people who built the country had nothing to do actually with the hatred of human beings and everything to do with the growing of the economy. Right uh, for for a very small amount of people, this isn't a conspiracy. This is just history, right? It's, this is just fact, right? W- the African people who were enslaved it had nothing to do with them actually believing that these people were less than, and everything to do with the fact that they had to justify why these people should be enslaved to then build a country and in turn build wealth for a very small amount of people, right? It's the reason that we can convince. And I'm sure there was a moment in time a million years ago where there was somebody who said, "Look." We got to figure out how to get wolves because wolves can drag us through the snow, right? And it's easier to do this with wolves than with bears because bears don't move as fast, right? So we got it. So we have to justify this by sort of domesticating the wolves and, and training the wolves and figuring out how to make the wolf less of a wild animal, not because we think the wolf deserves to be taken from its habitat and owned, but because we need to figure out how to travel through snow with better ease, 
that's the way human is self-interest, right? And so all I'm saying is that is that if 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 we if we recalibrate where it is our self-interest really lies, and we create doctrine to support that version of self-interest, one that is more equitable, more just, and more peaceful, why wouldn't and it may take a while, right? It may take a long time, but I just feel like it might be necessary to move in in that direction, starting with young people, by the way, right? It doesn't make sense to chop a tree down from the top of it. Right, right, exactly. The So spe- speaking of young people, um, uh, how, does, how does one go about adapting uh, a book to be able to speak to young adults uh, without speaking down to them? Were there things that you you left out or that you significantly altered? How how does one do that? Because uh, there's a lot of thoughts out there about you know what's appropriate for children, but also what children can reasonably be asked to to assimilate. Yeah, it's tricky, man. Um, but it all starts from you can't do this kind of work if you don't love and respect young people. And, and the truth, Depeche, the the painful. And and, and and embarrassing truth that a lot of us don't want to face is that many of us don't love and respect young people. That is the truth. It's a harsh truth. I think we tolerate young people. I think we bring them into the world and we're forced to sort of manage and, and raise them. But I think that there are a lot of us um, that really struggle with understanding what it means to truly love and respect a young person. I think the first thing one has to do is one has to see a young person as whole, right? So what happens is you hear these things because of science. And I listen, I believe in science. Don't get me wrong. I believe in science. But, you know, we, 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 take, we take the sort of tidbits of science that feed our narratives and we manipulate them to mistreat people. So we say things like, you know, a child's brain doesn't even fully develop until he's 19 or whatever the, the, the thing is. And therefore, it allows us, because of that fact, much like with racism and slavery, right? Because of that fact, it gives us a certain kind of leeway to discredit uh, and dismiss the lives, feelings, and opinions of young people. As if as if their brains, wherever their brains are, uh, however the, the development of their brains, have anything to do with the experiences that they're going through in their everyday lives, which, by the way, is helping with the development of said brain. It doesn't deny those experiences, though. And so I think for me, as someone who writes for young people and, and spends my life around young people, I always want to just be honest with them. Because when, you, when you're honest with them, all, what they normally tell you is, thank you for talking to us like people and not like children. Thank you for talking to us like humans and not like students. Right? It's a simple thing. Now, in terms of what they can handle and what they can't, uh, that typically never comes from the child and almost always comes from the parent. You rarely hear the child say, I can't handle this. What the child does naturally is ask questions to get better understanding of what you're talking about. It's the parent who says, my baby can't deal with this. My baby can't handle this. This is a bit much. And it's like, well, your child seems awfully engaged in this conversation. Perhaps we should give the child the benefit of the doubt and and, and see and see where that line is. And when we hit that line, we'll pull back. But most I mean, I've been look, depressed. I've been all over the world. Fortunately, all over the world, I've spoken to millions of children of many different cultures, from Chinese kids to uh, Irish kids locked in prison, to German kids in the countryside of Iraq, to kids in the projects in the Bronx, to uh, all over the all over the world. And what's most fascinating is that 
almost all of them are begging to have these conversations, um, but are always um, excluded from these conversations because of the feelings of not being ready to have them. They had the internet already. They know what's going on. They, they want to get engaged. They just want somebody to, to break it down and to give it to them in a way that makes sense and it's applicable to their lives. And because adults are, are so entitled, uh, which we are, uh, we refuse to do so. And instead what we say is, I'll wait for you to get older and then I'll expect you, and then I'll give you a crash course and I'll expect you to be able to manage something that could have been teaching you when you were eight and nine years old. There, <laughs> there is certainly that, that deep desire on the part of parents. And I think this translates into adults in general of wanting your child to forever stay quote unquote, what we think is naive and innocent, uh, and so on. But as you point out that, that, Children are exposed to the world from from the get go, and they learn about the world, and they learn stories from the world, and ways of thinking, and uh, and so on. Um, can I tell you? Can I tell you really quick something? Can I just tell you something that really bothers me? I get I get banned, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, all the time, right? I'm, I'm banned, and I'm, I'm always whatever I make. Somebody's some school, some district, some county, some mm -hmm. state, some city is going to ban it and say it's inappropriate. And what's wild, Depeche, is that. A book like Long Way Down, they say, nah, man, gun violence. A book like Stamped, nah, man, racism. All American boys, oh, police brutality, we can't do it. And then I talk to the kids, and I ask them what their favorite things to do are. And they're like, man, I love to play Call of Duty. I love to kill people on the internet with a headset on so that the gun sounds are loud in my head and I can talk to somebody from the other side of the world and we can create factions that run around and we slaughter the Nazis. We can do like, oh, oh I wonder, I love playing Grand Theft Auto or I love getting on YouTube. Um, it's amazing to me. And this is why I know the power of narrative is something we have to be thinking about because in every other faction of our lives, we have no problem with young people engaging with complicated things. But when it comes to narrative, because of the power of it and because of the ability of it to attach itself to your psyche, to the fibers of who you are, as if the rest of it's not, right? We seem to have a bigger issue with Sure. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote from the acknowledgement section at the end of Stamped where you said, there's no one I want to thank more than the young people. All of you deserve thanks. All of you deserve acknowledgement. All of you deserve to know that you are, in fact, the antidote to anti-blackness, xenophobia, homophobia, classism, sexism, and the other cancers that you have not caused, but surely have the potential to cure. And that quote reminds me of something I've said a lot in talks where I, I talk about brain development and, and the, the science and all, where... I say, you know, there's so many amazing, fantastic intellects out there that aren't allowed to shine through because of this this list of things that are there, right? Of 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 racism and xenophobia and 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 whatnot. That you know, we're we're all losing out when when we just lock up and paper over and bury essentially these 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 intellects that are there that I think do connect and and uh and speak to people in different ways and you know i think the other challenge is that people are very reductive about science so yes the brain is not quote unquote fully formed until actually the mid-20s but it's not the whole brain right it's actually talking specifically about the prefrontal cortex and you're absolutely right that everything that happens in between uh are our inputs into that brain and on top of that you know 
it's what children are fully aware of this. It reminds me of a conversation that I had with my kids in uh, late middle school about what kind of quote unquote language they were hearing. Uh, and they're like, oh yeah, we hear that on the bus every day. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the world had already gotten to, gotten to them. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's life, you know? I mean, look, we, like, I, and it'll create the one of the funniest thing about it. Sometimes the pressure, when I hear the argument about the development of the brain is I say, listen, if the development of the brain is the thing that that is 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 what sort of a good person is hinged upon, mm-hmm. I can tell you right now, you could be sixty with a with a, a fully developed brain and not be ready to have these conversations, right? Like it, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. I, I would argue that in some ways, uh, the older you are or just after you've reached adulthood, you're often more set in your ways and, and it's, it's, it's harder than it is with, with younger children. So glad I'm talking to a doctor. Can't wait to take this back to my friends. <laughs> <laughs> this doctor on the internet told me, yes. <laughs> exactly. That's going to be me. You know, I saw this doctor on the internet. <laughs> so... I'd like to close the show with one more passage from that uh, section of uh, the acknowledgments and stamped. Uh, would you mind reading that segment for us? Of course, of course. So let's learn all there is to know about the tree of racism. The root, the fruit, the sap and trunk, the nests built over time, the changing leaves. That way your generation can finally actively chop it down. Thank you, young people. I wish I could name you all, but I'd much rather you name yourselves. Thank you so much, Jason. I I could speak with you all day. This has been such a wonderful, brilliant, enlightening conversation just for me personally. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Welcome to today's 33rd page, our segment where we give you, our listeners, just a little bit extra. When I was in library school, I had the delight of sitting side by side with fellow students who were learning all sorts of different things. On one side, I might have someone who was there to learn about the intricacies of computer databases, and on the other side, someone who was restoring antiquarian books, and who I got to learn all sorts of wonderful bookbinding terms from. When you think about physical books, you realize, wow, there's a lot of ways to describe how books are put together, the condition they're in, all the different elements there. I mean, just listen to some of these. End papers, flyleaf, folio, halfbound, octavo, verso, starting hinge, three-quarter bound. There's something about physical books that seems to sit in our consciousness, in our society, about how they feel, about how they're put together, and about how they smell even, in some cases. And I think this is something that, yes, ebooks offer a lot and there's many benefits of them, but at the same time, there's something about a physical book that we really adore and celebrate in so many ways. So the next time you pick up a book, look carefully at the spine, Rub the pages gently with your fingertips, and yes, maybe even give it a sniff. And that's today's 33rd page. You've been listening to the Reach Out and Read podcast. Reach Out and Read is a nonprofit organization that is the authoritative national voice for the positive effects of reading daily and supports 
coaches, and celebrates engaging in those language-rich activities with young children. If you want to learn more about the importance of early language, literacy, and childhood developmental health, visit us at reachoutandread.org and subscribe to our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are posted every other week. This podcast is a production of Reach Out and Read. Our producer is Jill Ruby. Jen Teagan is our National Director of Marketing and Communications. Thank you to Boise Paper for making a difference in local communities like ours and for sponsorship of our podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Depeche Nafsaria. I look forward to spending time with you soon. And remember, books build better brains.